Thank you, church. Amen. If you would stay standing. We're going to just stand the whole service today. Um, if, yeah, if you would just remain standing while we read from God's word. This is Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 20 through verse 26. It says this. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to turn him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray that as you speak to us by your word, God, that our hearts and minds would not be blind to its truth and that in our flesh and in our sin, we would not seek to chase after things that are contrary to its truth. God, we pray that our hearts and minds would not be lulled to sleep, Lord, but instead that your word would rouse us and awaken us, that we might revere your name more and more, that we might present ourselves and all of our pursuits as a sacrifice to you. God, we pray that you would reign powerfully and peaceably among your people, and that your presence would perpetually dwell in us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have a friend in ministry who is a pastor at uh, one of Colonial Presbyterian's campuses. And uh, the job that brought him to Kansas City was actually a job at Paseo Baptist Church. He lived in Texas, did seminary down there. He was interviewing for that job at Paseo Baptist. And he came up one weekend and uh, interviewed in the context of the weekend and then preached that Sunday morning. And so he walked up. This is a congregation. You know, he doesn't really know. He's just starting to have any sort of interaction with them. They open up the Bible. He reads the passage for this morning. He invites people to be seated. And then he said a woman over to his right, he heard her just sort of like mumble almost under her breath, Lord, help this man. Uh, and he's like, I don't know what was going on there. I don't know if it was because I was young or something going on in her life or something about the passage. Um, but she heard him say that. And as I read this passage today, you might have thought in your heart, Lord, Help this man. I receive those prayers. You can keep praying them. Um, we've got a passage in front of us that um, God speaks clearly to us about what it looks like for followers of Jesus to engage with the civil authorities in their midst. And the witness of the New Testament is consistent on this topic. It pops up in numerous places, but here we have it at least 
the root principle from the mouth of Jesus. And so the hope today is to work through this passage and unpack the principle, talk practically about it, and then ultimately to rejoice in the gospel. That's our hope every Sunday. But I also think we need to spend at least a little bit of time at the outset being really clear about our moment today and Jesus's moment when he gave this. And so we'll also give time to that. And here's the landing spot this morning, that the gospel compels followers of Jesus into joyful obedience to civil authorities as an act of godly worship. That's a little bit longer than the main point is usually. Let me read it again. The gospel compels followers of Jesus into joyful obedience to civil authorities as an act of godly worship. Our moment culturally right now is one that is rife with thoughts about what it means for the Christian individual to both engage with and participate in civil life and government. If you just go back over the last couple of years and you consider all the various ways in which this topic has been sort of thrust in front of the church, COVID, masks, election cycles at the state, national, and even like the local school board level, confirmation of Supreme Court justices, legislation about a handful of aggressively contentious moral and ethical situations, international politics, inflation. There's no limit to the number of things that have given us reason to think about this particular topic and given us opportunities to disagree on how it is that a follower of Jesus should interact with it. And what many of these conversations are missing, in my humble opinion, is the gospel. Note that I didn't say truth. Note that I didn't say passion. Note that I didn't say Christian influence. Note that I didn't even say that the conversations lack mention of Jesus. Note that I did say the gospel. The beautiful truth of Jesus Christ, taking on human flesh, stepping into the world, living sinlessly, dying willingly, rising triumphantly, ascending graciously, ruling and reigning bodily, saving graciously, forgiving mercifully, sanctifying patiently, interceding compassionately. The gospel, the good news of Jesus resisting sin, rejecting sin, being made sin, dying for sin, defeating sin, forgiving sin, sanctifying his people from their sin and one day returning to eliminate sin. Ask yourself honestly, the last time you listened to someone on this topic, social media, the news, the radio, and you heard them talk about Christians and their responsibility as it relates to the government, how they should vote, what they should think, what they should support, what they should disavow, etc. Did you hear anything about the gospel? Not truth, not passion, not Christianity as a construct, but the gospel explicitly. I will not pretend for a single moment this morning that I'm going to get this perfect. I will not pretend for a single moment that I'm going to appease everyone in this room this morning or who might be listening in some digital capacity. In fact, I think there's a higher likelihood that I leave everyone at least a little bit frustrated or unsatisfied to some degree. 
I will not pretend for a single moment that this one sermon is going to answer every question about how it is that followers of Jesus should engage with our democratic republic. I also won't pretend for a single moment that my approach will be the best you've ever heard, that my tone will be perfect, or that my practical application will be wholly satisfying. But I will make you this promise this morning. We're going to bring the good news of the gospel into this conversation. And I pray that we're able to do so in a way that is helpful and edifying, that's beneficial, and that's ultimately glorifying to God. And again, I'm not talking merely about bringing truth into the conversation, which is good and is what we should always do. I'm not talking about bringing passion into the conversation, which can be either good or bad. And I'm not talking about bringing Christianity as like a general construct into the conversation, which again, can be good or bad depending on how it's used. I'm talking about the gospel. The beautiful truth of Jesus Christ taking on human flesh, stepping into the world, living sinlessly, dying willingly, rising triumphantly, ascending gloriously, ruling and reigning bodily, saving graciously, forgiving mercifully, sanctifying patiently, interceding compassionately. The good news of Jesus Christ resisting sin, rejecting sin, being made sin, dying for sin, defeating sin, forgiving sin, sanctifying his people from sin, and one day coming back to eliminate sin entirely. With all of that said, let's pray again. God, speak to us clearly in your word. Illuminate its truth. Expose our hearts if necessary. By your spirit, help us to lay down our weapons as it relates to this topic and conversation. God, help us to come to your word humbly that we might know you and know who it is that you're forming your people to be as people of your kingdom. God, help us to know what it is to live a life that worships you. Speak to us clearly through your word, by your spirit, about your son, to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's kind of our moment. Let's spend a few minutes talking about the moment here for Jesus because this statement takes place in a larger context, both in the gospel of Luke, but also historically for Jesus when he gives this. It's not just that Jesus is walking down a road in Jerusalem one day, a few days before going to the cross, and he's working through a mental checklist of topics that he's hit in his various teachings, and he realizes, ah, I haven't done government yet. And then he just shouts something out sort of into the world. There's an actual situation that gives rise to this moment. So in the middle of chapter 19, Luke records for us Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And as he comes in, he's being hailed as king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And as he's riding in on a donkey in that moment, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Then he goes straight into the temple where he flips over some tables and he runs out these people who are buying and selling in the outer courts of the temple. Then he's got an interaction with the religious leaders of his day. And they say, hey, by what authority are you doing this stuff? And by this stuff, they mean certainly the flipping over of the tables and the preaching of the forgiveness of sin. But they also mean like the whole of his ministry. By what authority are you casting out demons? By what authority are you healing people? By what authority are you doing these miracles, making these pronouncements, teaching the way that you are? 
And Jesus, there at the beginning of chapter 20, says, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do this stuff? And they say, uh, we don't know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do this. And then in verse nine, he launches into a parable. It's a parable of a vineyard. It's got an owner and some tenant farmers. He works his way all the way through that parable. And look at what chapter 20, verse 19 says. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour. Why? We're told. Because they knew he had told this parable against them. Jesus gives this parable and we're told that the religious elite, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, they know that the parable is about them and against them. And despite knowing they're not humbled or softened or repentant by Jesus's words, instead, they double down. Verse 20, so they started to watch closely. They sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said, hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They double down on their hardness, send spies, ingratiate themselves, feign humility and respect, all while looking to trap Jesus. And then note, verse 23, Jesus knows that's what they're doing. Detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. In Matthew's parallel account of this, Matthew says that he understands their, mis, or their maliciousness. Nothing is slipping by Jesus. He knows that they know that the parable was about them. He knows that they were not humbled or softened or repentant. He knows that these are spies, that they're flattering him. He knows they're looking to trap him. And just a little sort of aside here. Jesus still knows these things today. We open up and read God's word in a quiet time one morning. We hear God's word in the context of our small group or we engage with God's word in the corporate context of the church. He knows when we hear those things and we feel conviction about them. And rather than being humbled or softened and repentant, we harden and double down. I don't, I don't think I need to give a litany of examples for us all to understand the moments in which we've done that. And yet, Jesus knows, God knows. And look at one of the amazing things here is that Jesus, in response to knowing, does not say, you brood of vipers, how dare you? Instead, he takes the opportunity to continue to teach them. And when we have this posture with Jesus and with God's word, he does the same, patiently persisting with us and illuminating the truth for us no matter how many times we either fail to see it or choose not to be humbled by it. He's patient in that, intentional. And despite his patience and intentionality, these scribes and religious elite, these authorities, they want to trap him. So they ask him a question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What's the trap there? Let me give you the short answer first. The trap is that if Jesus says, no, you do not need to pay taxes, then these religious authorities who want to hand Jesus over to the governor, they can just do it because here he is defying 
Caesar's rule. Here he is inciting people to go against the rulers and the authorities. So they could just walk him over to Pilate, say, hey, we heard him do this, and Pilate will do the dirty work at that point. But there's a trap on the other side too. If Jesus says that the people must pay their taxes to the occupying Roman government, he risks turning the Israelite people on himself. They don't like this occupying Roman government. They feel like paying taxes and tributes to Caesar is like offering worship to a false deity because that's how Rome positioned their emperors. And so if Jesus says, yeah, you just need to pay your taxes, then the people might turn on him because he's a traitor. And for these religious leaders, then maybe the Jewish people will just do the dirty work of running this guy out of town or stoning him to death for being idolatrous or something like that. That's the short answer. The long answer is that running in the background of this is an actual historic event. We saw something similar when we looked at the parable of the 10 minas and this incident involving a man named Archelaus. But there was a literal tax uprising in this Palestine area in 6 and 7 AD. It was led by a man named Judas the Zealot. He's from the region of Galilee. The Zealots were this group of Israelite nationalists who were tired of the Roman occupying government and they were willing and ready to fight in order to have them removed. So in 6 AD, the emperor uh, gives this big tax census that is supposed to take place. The point of that is that the Roman officials would get an accurate head count of all the people in Palestine and they would be able to extract more tax from them and conscript their men into the military. Now that's not a totally foreign idea for the Israelite people. Just go back and read Numbers chapter one. The Israelites took census of themselves for these reasons frequently. The problem is that it's the Roman government doing it. And now we're not paying taxes for like the beautifying of our temple or something like that. We're not giving over to our own authorities. We're giving to someone else and we're being conscripted into military service for this brutal occupying government that oppresses us. And that was totally detestable to the Israelite people. And so Judas and the zealots whip the people into a frenzy and they revolt. That revolt got brutally crushed by the Roman Empire. Judas the Zealot dies along with the rest of the leaders and many of the others who took part in the rebellion. So run that in the background. And now here comes this guy, Jesus. He arrives in Jerusalem having traveled from where? Galilee. He's got a disciple in his entourage who literally goes by the name Simon the Zealot. He rides into Jerusalem, Jesus does, to hails of being king. And he's got this mass of people that look like they're ready to sweep him into authority. And so these religious leaders at the temple who have a vested interest in keeping things as the status quo, look at him and say, okay, Jesus, how about taxes? What do you think? Like, look at how tenuous the moment is there for Jesus. Someone in the crowd listening probably thought to themselves, Lord, help this man. Like, what is he gonna do? He's backed up against the wall. He says the wrong thing and these religious leaders march him to Pilate so that he can be killed on the spot. But now we turn to Jesus's answer. He says, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have on it? 
The coins in and of themselves were a bit offensive to Jewish people. That's because they had images and inscriptions that were idolatrous. They made it seem like you, should, you would be worshiping something other than God. And so here's a picture of those coins. That is a Roman denarius. It's about the size of a dime. It would have been the equivalent of about a day's worth of wages in Rome at this time. On one side is a picture of, of Caesar. And then the inscription that runs along the outside reads Tiberius Caesar Augustus son of divine Augustus. Then on the other side is a picture of a woman that most scholars agree portrays her as the incarnation of the goddess of peace. And the inscription there says the high priest. And so Jesus asks the questioners to identify whose image and whose inscription is on the coin. And they answer, Caesar, they said, So Jesus responds in verse 25. He doesn't dodge the question, he answers it. Well then, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And these religious leaders would have been thinking to themselves, well, drat, we thought we had him, but he's wiggled his way out of it. But the rest of the listening Jewish audience would have thought, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you telling me to be idolatrous? to worship someone other than God. But Jesus isn't done yet. And then he says, and give to God the things that are God's. We're told that in that response, these religious leaders were, verse 26, amazed at his answer and they became silent. And the rest of the Jewish crowd there would have been appeased by Jesus's answer. I give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but more importantly, I give to God the things that are God's. That's the principle. Stated the way I began at the start of our sermon, the gospel compels followers of Jesus into joyful obedience to civil authorities as an act of godly worship. What does that mean? Well, I'm gonna say the same thing three different ways here. Number one, as followers of Jesus, It is an act of godly worship to obey the laws and regulations of our civil governments so long as said obedience does not force us into sin. Stated another way, it is sin to transgress the laws of our civil government that are not forcing us into disobedience to God's commands. Stated a third way, it is disobedient to God to be disobedient to civil authorities when those authorities are not commanding disobedience to God. Now, a couple of important caveats. Caveat number one, it is not my personal sense of what the government should or should not be able to do that determines whether or not I should or should not obey. It's not just me driving down the road saying, I don't think 65 is the right speed limit here. I'm gonna drive 90 and thus disobey. The thing that is supposed to delineate whether or not we obey those civil authorities or not is God's standard and his word on what is and is not righteous. And so if the civil law compels me to break that law, God's law, then I disobey. Here's the other caveat. We want to push this immediately to all of our whatabouts. Okay, so this is the principle, what about? What about this? 
What about that? And we want to push to the whatabouts so that we can maybe somehow negate the glorious middle of everything. Like there's a big, beautiful space and reason why Jesus gives this principle, but we want the whatabouts to give us freedom to negate the middle. That's typically what we're doing with our whatabouts. Sometimes our whatabouts are actually well-meaning and come from a good heart. Most of the time, our whatabouts come from, can I find the loophole that gets me out of the principle in general? So practically speaking, what does this mean? Well, the most direct application of the passage, it means pay your taxes. We just did that. We should pay them honestly, forthrightly, to the best of our genuine knowledge. You work your way through the TurboTax thing. You get to the bottom and it tells you what to do. And you sit down at your table there or your desk and you write that check to the government and you say act of worship and you put that thing in the mail and you say praise the Lord oh my soul in all my deepest parts I have paid my taxes it doesn't mean you got to like how much you paid it doesn't mean you have to agree with the tax tables it doesn't mean you have to agree with all the ways that the taxes are spent but you give to Caesar what is Caesar's And in doing so, you obey the higher authority of God and thus worship him. It means to obey traffic laws. Abide by the speed limit. Don't run stoplights. Don't pump and go at the stop sign. Pay your tickets. Get your car inspected when you're supposed to. Relish your time at the DMV getting the license plates re-licensed, right? You're sitting there in the DMV waiting for them to call your number thinking to yourself, praise the Lord. His mercy is, right? I get to sit in the DMV for an hour. Shovel your driveway. Shovel your sidewalks if the city or the HOA requires it. Don't shoplift. Don't engage in auto theft. Don't traffic drugs. Don't resell your prescriptions. Don't illegally dump waste in a field. Don't drink underage or cut corners on building codes. Don't lie under oath and a thousand other things. And that includes when you disagree with the law. So long as the law isn't causing you to sin. Keep a little context in mind here. There are times here in our cultural context, in our governmental setup, when we don't love the decisions that our elected officials make. There are times in our cultural context, in our governmental setup, when we don't love the decisions that our elected officials make and they represent the party that we didn't vote for and that we borderline loathe. And Jesus says, obey. Sure, vote for something different. You can campaign or lobby for a different person in office or a change in policy. By all means, go for it. It's one of the blessings of the setup of our government and the fact that God and his providence put you here in this place at this time. But as you engage, be civil about it. Embody the fruit of the spirit as you go about the process. Honor, respect, and extend dignity to your political opponents or your positional opponents. Bear the image of Christ in your engagement. But go ahead. Engage all you want. But keep in mind who Jesus is actually talking to here. They don't have any of those options. They live under an oppressive, occupying, oftentimes brutal empire. And Jesus says, 
obey. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And as you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, understand that you're really worshiping God and giving him the obedience that he deserves. Now note with me what Jesus doesn't answer in the passage. Because this is a passage where the Bible does not answer all of our questions explicitly. Jesus does not take the time to envision all the possible whatabouts in all potential forms of government throughout all time. He doesn't do that for us. Instead, he pushes us to think about the bigger picture. He does not address what the scope of that command is. His answer does not delineate exactly what the relationship is between giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and giving to God what is God's. He simply says that we are to do so. That we are to give civil authorities what is theirs and we are to give God what is God's. The relationship between those two things helps us define the scope, but we've got to be willing to step back and think deeply about the relationship between those things because one is infinite and eternal and the other is limited and temporal. And that means that one is the umbrella under which the other exists. And there's gonna come a day when Jesus comes back And the other thing, the civil authority, is no longer going to exist because we are going to dwell with God in his perfect rule and reign for all of eternity. One is above the other. Abraham Kuyper famously said it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not cry, mine. And that includes the temporal civil governments under which we live and exist. And so if we do a little thinking about the relationship between those two things and we zoom out to get sort of the broad scriptural picture of this, there are a couple of truths that we can land on in a concrete fashion. Number one is this, civil authority is derived from God's authority, which means he gives it. Proverbs 21.1, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. In John chapter 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate's asking him some questions. Jesus is refusing to answer. He's just standing there silent. And Pilate says, don't you understand that I have the authority to hand you over to be killed? And in verse 11, Jesus says, you have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. In Romans chapter 13, verse one, Paul says this, there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Now, we wanna rush to the whatabouts, and there are some hard questions to think about. What about governments that are overtly oppressive and evil? Is God giving those? Those are hard questions for us to grapple with. We, we think about history and our hearts jump to the most extreme examples, or we think about today and we jump to the most extreme examples. But scripture's clear. All human authorities derive their authority ultimately from God who is sovereign over all and gives authority to human beings. Truth number two, civil authority is limited in light of God's authority, which simply means he ultimately holds all of it. That's why he can give some of it. Daniel 2, 21, he removes kings and establishes kings. Acts 5.29, in fact, the entire book of Acts off and on show us that the apostles understood this principle 
well. They're out obeying God, preaching the gospel. They get dragged in front of a human court for doing so. And they say, we must obey God rather than men. Why? God has commanded us to preach. You can tell us not to, but we're going to obey him. Then they get thrown in jail. That's the worldly consequence for their disobedience. And they joyfully go to jail, just like they joyfully preached before. Because both were acts of worship to the king, capital K. Third, our, civil, our, our obedience to civil authority is shaped by our submission to God's authority. Paul, again, in Romans 13 says, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. First Peter 2.13, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. This is where I think we have to be willing to think deeply about what Jesus is saying and deeply about how the gospel intersects with this. The gospel, the beautiful truth of Jesus Christ taking on human flesh, stepping into the world, living sinlessly, dying willingly, rising triumphantly, ascending gloriously, ruling and reigning bodily, saving graciously, forgiving mercifully, sanctifying fully, and interceding compassionately. Jesus, the good news of him resisting sin, rejecting sin, being made sin, dying for sin, defeating sin, forgiving sin, sanctifying his people from sin, and one day returning to eliminate sin. How does that intersect with this and lead me to say that the biblical picture is that the gospel, the gospel compels followers of Jesus into joyful obedience to civil authorities as an act of godly worship? Kind of understand the moment here. Jesus, the perfect image of God, Colossians 2, Hebrews chapter 1. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. That Jesus is standing here with these religious elite and he says, give me a coin whose image is stamped on it. That Jesus who has come to rescue, redeem, and forgive those who were made in the image of God, but marred by sin. His image is stamped on you. It's stamped on me. And when sin enters into the world, it doesn't negate that image, but it does mark it now. And so here comes Jesus, not just bearing the image of God, but the literal person of God as himself with human flesh. And he succeeds in every way that humanity has failed. Adam and Eve put into the garden. God tells them, rule and subdue this place. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but rule and subdue. And they fail. And now ruling and subduing is just littered with the reality of sin in our world. Here comes Jesus and he succeeds in every single way that humanity has failed. He images God perfectly in the world that God has created. And then he is killed by sinful humanity. The perfect image bearer of God has his life snuffed out by those who were made in God's image. He's killed for humanity by humanity. But sort of think even one step further. Jesus, 
anything that he commands us to do, he fulfills perfectly, he models perfectly, and he empowers us to do as his people. He's killed for humanity by humanity as he submits to a sinful, broken, unjust civil authority. Like he stands there in front of Pilate. Pilate says, defend yourself. And Jesus says, nothing. And so Pilate sends him off to be crucified. Why would Jesus do that? Well, because he knows that this moment is not ultimately about submission to Pilate. It is about submission to the Father. And in eternity, it was decreed that the Son would come and he would suffer for humanity, bearing the image of God perfectly, that he might die for humanity's sin, and then, by his grace, restore the image of God and the people of God to the glory of God in the world that God created. And so he submits to the sentence that they pass down. That doesn't mean that in every unjust, unjust, broken, ugly, evil situation in every governmental format around the world, we should just give ourselves over to evil and injustice and never stand up and fight against that. We're not the son of God. Submitting to the civil authority is not going to save me and resisting it isn't going to save anybody else. The son of God saves. And he redeems the image of God in the people of God to the glory of God in the world that God created. And so he goes to the cross and he dies at the hands of the government. And the reason that we sit here today is because he was willing to do so. He triumphs over sin and death. And in doing that, he ensures our salvation. He begins to restore make whole the image of God in his people. And so the gospel compels followers of Jesus into joyful obedience to civil authorities as a godly act of worship because we're a people who understand that when we submit to civil authority, we're ultimately submitting to something much higher. We're giving to God what is God's by obeying civil authority. And so that means this. That means to live a life of worship, which entails a lot of things, absolutely entails joyful obedience to the civil authorities that God has providentially and sovereignly placed above us. The peak act of God's glory screams out from the cross. The exact expression of God's image endured death at the hands of civil authority that we might be saved according to his eternal authority. And now all the glory is his. And so you get a traffic ticket and you go online to pay it and you type in your bank account information and you hit send, praise the Lord, I'm obeying. Not because I love traffic tickets, but because I love the king. You're sitting at a stop sign in the middle of the night no cars in sight. You pull up to that thing and you stop all the way and you count one, two, two seconds to worship Jesus right there, built into your day. You're driving through a neighborhood at night, 25 miles an hour, but it's late. There aren't cars anywhere. There's nobody outside. You could go 40. You go 25 instead. Extra time in the car to worship Jesus. There it is, built in for you. You wait to drink alcohol until you're 21 years old. Why? Why? Because 
We obey the civil authorities. You've got 21 years worth of opportunities to worship Jesus with your cup of Coke. Like, that's the opportunity. And as followers of Jesus, there can be joy in that. Because Jesus has paid the price for our sin on the cross, not to enslave us to our civil authorities, but to free us from sin and to worship him fully, which then he says, obey. And we can. And so we obey as an act of worship, worship that is formed and informed by the gospel. And we do so looking forward to an eternity where Jesus will return and he will reign in perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And there will be no evil and no brokenness in his rule and in his reign. And we get a chance to prepare ourselves for that here and now while we look forward to it arriving in the future. So let me paint a scenario for you. You stroll into work tomorrow or somewhere and everybody's just recently paid their taxes and a group of people are grumbling and complaining about the amount that they paid and yada, yada, yada. And now you've got an option. You can either air out the grievances of your flesh or you can allow your obedience to that tax table to be an act of worship to the capital K king. Why would we do that? Because he has all authority and in his authority, he has told us, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. We're going to close in worship this morning as we typically do. And we're going to sing a couple of songs. Both of them are about God's authority, his ruling, his reigning, his seat being seated on the throne. And one of them, the second one is a song that we typically sing at Christmas. There's a specific reason why we're going to sing that song not at Christmas today. The third verse says this, when on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall ere his people be, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing, even while we obey the governments here. All glory be to Christ. Stand up, let's sing.